0: Welcome back to the Andrew Curtis Show. Um, If you have listened to the show for a while, you will have noticed a trend. And that trend is that I am fascinated by the idea of how do you really help somebody? And you may have a friend or a family member right now who you think of when I talk about that. Um, But one thing that I've become fascinated about in particular is the idea that, there are those who have had to overcome more than most, and there are those who have stories of turning lives around that many of us, you know, that would make for a movie script if we heard about them, but but they're true stories, and one of the stories that I became aware of in the last week was that of Kenneth E. Hartman, and uh, the E is important because there's another Hart, Kenneth, Kenneth Hartman out there, so if you go searching, it's Kenneth E. Hartman, um, and uh, and his story of a life behind bars that is now through an incredible turnaround, become a life that is devoted to helping others and to become even a life coach based on the lessons that he's learned across his journey. And so it's my privilege to have Kenneth joining me now. So Kenneth, welcome to the show. It's so good to have you here. It's great to be here, Andrew. Thanks for the invite. No problem. No problem. So I think uh, when it comes to telling people's stories, I always find it's better to hear it from, uh, from the person themselves. So if you, wouldn't be, uh, if you wouldn't mind, can you give me a little bit of background in terms of um, your story and I guess what led us to even this conversation we're about to have today?
1: Well, <clears throat> my stories, uh, well, you know, my, my whole story is a really long one. It's about 57 years. So I'll we'll kind of break <laughs> it down to the more recent part of the story. But uh, sure. so uh, when I was 19 years old, I killed a man named Thomas Allen Fellows in a fistfight. I was drunk. Uh, I was in a park in a city named Long Beach in uh, Southern California. And I was ultimately sentenced to life without the possibility of parole in prison. And for the whole time I was in, people essentially with life without the possibility of parole just never get out of prison. It's essentially a death sentence. Mm. And... I actually started an organization while I was in prison called the other death penalty project because essentially it's the other death penalty. It's like a kinder, gentler death penalty that we America pretends isn't really a death penalty, but to, you know, there are more than 50,000 people in the United States serving life without the possibility of parole. So it's like a much larger, much less paid attention to death row essentially. Mm. But during that time i figured out ways to you know to work to become a better human being i met people who influenced my life and brought things into my life that changed the way i saw the world and fundamentally changed the way i saw myself until years later i've been in prison for a pretty long time by this point um i participate in starting a program called the honor program inside the prison system uh, um where basically guys who want to do time in a better way, who want to get away from the the negativity and the drama that's inside prisons. I suspect it's in prisons everywhere, but it's definitely in prisons in this country. Mm. Uh, And through that process, ultimately just uh, came to realize I wanted to write, Uh, ended up becoming a writer, published in a whole bunch of different places. and, uh, And I wrote a memoir in 2008 called Mother California, A Story of Redemption Behind Bars. And the book gained some attention, uh, you know, won some awards, uh, you know, and fundamentally it introduced me to a whole another group of people who uh, came into my life. And about, so, I don't know, about three years ago, uh, some friends of mine said, you, you know, you should file for a commutation application from the governor, which no governor in California had done in the last 25 years. So it was kind of one of those, nobody thought about it really. And then uh, on April 15th of last year, Governor Jerry Brown commuted my sentence to life with the possibility of parole. And uh, six months later, I went to the board and they found me suitable for parole. And on December 20th of last year, I was paroled. So I've been out now uh, nine months and one day, but I'm not counting, you know. uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't think anyone would blame you if you were. Well, I might be, you know, I don't want to say that I am, but I might it's It's, you know, I mean, to say that my life has turned around is like a, you know, I mean, that's a gross understatement. I'm um, yeah. sitting here in beautiful uh, Santa Monica, California, having this conversation with you. Um, and I've, you know, many, many good things have come into my life in the last nine months. So yeah. it's a, uh, and ultimately, uh, that, and one of the things I certainly want to talk about today is I, you know, I had never even heard of a life coach, frankly. And I, and, and if I had heard of it, I thought it was just someone who teaches you how to do a life sentence in prison. <laughs> say, why would I want that? Saying
0: it, I was thinking, yeah, if anyone's eminently qualified, right? There you go. Right.
1: Yes, exactly. So, uh, so as it turns out, li- a life coach is a real thing, and it's right. a really, really good thing, and mm. the idea of being a life coach is helping someone basically find their best self. That's from the mm. idea of mm. life coaching, as I understand it. And I came upon this tremendous opportunity to participate in a program that's uh, run through an organization called Leadership That Works, mm-hmm. and the program is called Coaching for Transformation, mm-hmm. which people who run the program felt I was possibly uh, somewhat well qualified for uh, transformational uh, coaching. Yep. And, um, and I am in the process of, I've already begun the program. Hmm. Uh, they gave me a scholarship to cover almost half of the cost. And I'm uh, running a GoFundMe campaign right now uh, to cover the rest of the cost. So that's, uh, and it's, you know, and this is one of about, 10 different things that I've become involved in since I got out. Um, I, I make the joke to people that the only thing I miss about prison is free time. <laughs> I don't have out here. Right. <laughs> so, you know, that's um, that. So that's kind of the, that's the nutshell of my story. And uh, obviously I've written a book about it and I'm mm. in the process of when I find a little more free time, I'm going to write a second book that will be about this part of my life story. You know, the, Because the book I published in prison ended in 2008, and I want to tell the story since then, you know, after getting out and the whole prop thing that's gone into that. So that's kind of where I'm at at the moment.
0: Well, look, and and one thing too that I'm going to commit to for those who are listening as well, and once you've listened to this conversation, if you want to respond and be a part of supporting Kenneth in this as well, uh, then um, I'm going to include the link to the GoFundMe in the description for this podcast as well. So if you want to find that, you can link through there. But we'll we'll reference this a couple of times as we go along as well. Um, so then let's let's talk about then, I guess, in more detail the the journey to get to this point. And I mean, you mentioned it was you were 19 years old. Is that right? I was, yes. Okay, so talking to you right now, um I would have no sense of of what you had had been through and having looked into a little bit of your story as well, talking about the the dark emotions that you were carrying with you at that part of your life and I think probably the earlier part of your sentence as well. So one thing I'm fascinated about in particular is is that is that change that moment that you went from, you know, I guess the person that you were and, and started to become the person that you are today. I, I don't believe that it. it would have happened in a, in a, um, in an instant. Oh. Um, but let's, let's talk about that 19 year old kid because yeah. I think when we're talking about these stories of, of people who are in prison, I'm very aware too of the narrative that we hear through our own media as well that these, these kids, no matter what they've done well, you know, they're just, they're, they're scum and this is what they've done and they deserve, the punishment that they get, but let's talk about you back then. How would you describe yourself when you're in, uh, when you're 19 years old?
1: Well, um, and, and I, and I just want to second you, these things are not, you know, light bulb moments. They really aren't. That's, that's not, at least in my life, that's not how it works, but sure. When, when, my 19 year old self. Um, so if you can imagine, you know, I, I grew up, pretty rough, you know, and I grew up in a pretty rough area. My family was pretty dysfunctional. Uh, Got involved with drugs when I was probably 13 years old, you know, drinking, you know, and sort of, and I think if I was going to put a, put some kind of label on it, it's very difficult thing to do, I suspect. But for me, the issue really boiled down to, I didn't feel like I was loved. And I know Mm -hmm. that can sound really trite and like, wow, that's, that's ridiculous. But If you, I think if you really step back from it and you, and you think about it, when you don't feel that you're loved, you don't Mm -hmm. feel that you're lovable. And then if you don't feel that you're lovable, you assume that there's something broken and wrong with you. And, and, and I think what happens is, and at least it did for me is you sort of get this tremendous resentment builds up inside of you and a feeling of rage that like, what, you know, what's wrong with me? You know, why does, why does no one care about me? Why, you know, why do I not feel loved by my parents? And I want to be clear and say my parents, you know, and, and interestingly, uh, I have an article coming out in a major magazine in the United States in a couple of, couple of months now. And I talk about this issue in particular, my parents were both orphans. Okay. And, and I think when I looked, when I t- thought about their lives, they had experienced a lot of really traumatic things and I think it broke something inside of them. Mm-hmm. And then they passed that on to, to us, you know, and it's, it's not really a shock that myself and my brothers and my sister all had tremendous dysfunctions in our lives. And, and very rarely is there some, do you run into someone who is just somehow inexplicably, this person is just bad, you yeah. know, that doesn't usually happen. And, and the, the Thing about it is, we don't talk about these things as men very much. You know, it's kind of mm. we keep it a secret. You know, our feelings. You don't talk about our feelings. You know, you got to be stoic and tough, and you know, and, and then um, and then you find out years later when you're in a men's group inside prison, and everyone's talking about their lives. You start looking around the room, and you go, "Wow, everybody in here has lived pretty much the same life I did." Yeah, you know, there's this dysfunction in your life. There's a sense of being unloved, of being unwanted, of, of being rejected by society. I mean there's a whole panoply of these things and, and they lead to the person I was at 19 was just someone who was just filled with irrational rage. Yeah. And that's really at the end of the day, that's what it was. And sadly, that's how I ended up in the position where uh, I, I meet a man who is probably drunk and I'm drunk and we get in an argument and we get in a fist fight and that's this and the ultimate result is is the, the man is dead. And I'm in prison serving the rest of my life. Um, it's 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 it on like one level you can go, well, that's just inexplicable. How could that possibly happen? But if you dig a little deeper under the layers, you go, well, actually, it's not inexplicable at all. It's kind of almost would be the expected outcome. Yeah. But this is why when you look at when you look at people who who grow up in these kind of circumstances, have these kind of family situations, whether they're in the United States, whether they're in Northern Ireland, whether they're in, I'm assuming in New Zealand, uh mm-hmm. anywhere else in the world, outcomes like this are more likely to happen. There's a higher incidence of, you know, young men, violence, drugs, alcohol, prison dysfunction, you know, all these other things. This is what happens to men. Other things generally happen to women, but they're similar dysfunctions coming from sure. similar backgrounds. Um, I think we, I think we like to believe in society that like everything that we do is our doing. Like yeah. if, so when the person becomes a billionaire, I did everything. This is my thing. Right. That, yeah. right. And I think that the problem is, is that, uh, is that when you, that's nice if you win, but if you lose, well, that's all your fault. And sure. it's like, and, it, and we know that guy who became a billionaire, he didn't do that really all by himself. He lived yeah. in a society where that was possible. He went to the right schools. He knew the right sure. people. You know, uh, somebody once said, uh, you know, someone that someone studied success and people who became very rich, and right. they asked, him, so what is the, you know, what is the secret? And he said, well, actually, it really boils down to one thing: pick your parents well. Hmm. Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, so so the, and so, you could almost make the same observation for people who fail early in life. You know, yeah. pick your parents really poorly. You know, I mean, generally speaking, this comes from family issues. And mm. I don't believe any child is born evil. I don't mm. believe any child comes out like, well, this, this kid's going to prison. So we might as well lock him up today. Sure. Right? So, you know, so I think there's a, this is the problem. It's a, it's a, I think it's a, it's a systemic problem. And Ken at 19, at 19 years old was a product of a lot of things uh, that had happened to him, then the world around him, uh, the people in his life. And he was one of those kind of kids who, didn't possess the necessary tools to resist all that and went with it and became violent and hostile and filled with rage. And, and it doesn't excuse anything I did. And I'm, and I don't want it to sound like I'm saying, well, it's just not my fault and I should be given a a hug instead. I'm not saying that, but I think these things have to be looked at in a broader context.
0: Mm. Yeah. And for the sake of, of playing devil's advocate, I suppose as well, or maybe angel's advocate. Um, There are those who would say well I went through that situation and I didn't turn out that way why didn't they just make different choices or better choices no doubt something you've you've heard before what would you oh, say no, to that
1: I've heard it many times and the first thing I would say to that is god bless them I mean good for them yeah. and yeah. Well, I, I would have been one of them you know yeah. uh, uh, unfortunately I was not and and it's I think it's you can look at it as that means that somehow the people who make bad choices are somehow evil. Or you can say the people who make good choices are just were just fortunate, made the right choices at the right time. You know, there's an old, old saying that's kind of been lost in modern Western society. And it was, you know, there but for the grace of God go I.
0: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, and, and a lot of times these things are just, I mean, they are really just one decision in the wrong direction. And it leads you down this path. And often that long, that first wrong direction is taken when you're 13 years old. Oh, or sure. 12 years old, you know, and you and it puts you in this this sort of downhill slope that's very difficult to get out of. And and they're right, you know. I mean, I, I wish I would have made those better decisions. I obviously, in retrospect, I do, but mm. I didn't, you know. Yeah. And that's uh, you know, and I don't know that that's a uh, uh, some kind of fatal flaw. I think it just is. I'm a human, and yeah. i I did not make the right choices when I should have which I did really really do.
0: Oh sure. And and I think too. I mean you 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 made a I think very very cogent point too when you say that when you look at those who are behind bars especially for you know the the longer term sentences and for um violent crime and those sorts of things. You know, if it was just about making a bad choice at the wrong moment, you'd expect people to have a variety of backgrounds. You know, they you'd don't. say, well, then surely you'd, you know, it could have been this kid was a stockbroker and this guy was right. a whatever, and then one day he made a bad choice. But as you well, mentioned, um, and something that I learned even in my experience with uh working with those or having conversations with those who work in drug and alcohol recovery, uh, the correlation between drug and alcohol dependence and longer term prison sentences is pretty much ninety-eight percent, right?
1: Oh, absolutely! Oh, it's at least ninety-eight percent. I mean, I've often made this observation too. You know, in prison, you run into every kind of person. In right. the United States, in particular, very diverse population. You got all sure. different ethnicities and races and religions. There's only one group of people you don't run into. That's rich people. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. which people don't go to prison. I mean, they just don't, no. you know what I mean? And, and, and and you could even stretch it down to, I mean, you run into very, very few, even upper middle class people sure. or even middle class people. You, what you run into is 95% of the time running people who come from lower socioeconomic backgrounds. Yeah. Come meet people who have, have dysfunctional families who had, were in poor school systems or in yeah. know, areas that were heavily and aggressively policed. I mean, these are the kinds of things you run into and, you know, uh, it's hard to believe that there isn't some kind of connection between those things.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's think about then. I mean, gosh, there's so much in that too. Um, thinking about then, I guess when you, when you began your sentence, this, this, this change that you, ex- you're going to experience, you know, isn't going to come for a number of years, decades even. Yeah. So that first, that first day, that first week, um, I mean, I don't know how fresh that would be on your mind, but remembering, you know, what you were experiencing and the, you know, what did you see in that environment when you first, you know, spent those first few days in the place that was actually going to be your home for the next few decades?
1: Well, uh, you know, you know, it, it that's a good question. And, but, and, and I, and I'll have an answer that will sound probably a little weird, but you know, for me. I felt like I was just hanging around the people I've been hanging around with my whole life. I mean, really, <laughs> right. this is, I think this is the, you know, I, I think, you know, movies about prison are, are written by people who haven't been in prison, generally speaking. Sure. And they yeah. imagine what it would be like for them to go to prison. It would be this terrifying experience. Right people yelling and screaming at them and all just for the record that never ever happens right okay that's one of those tropes in prison movies that we all just laugh about and go that's never happened ever in the world i don't believe but but i think so so what really the issue is and again i think this speaks a little bit to what we were just talking about which is that idea of you know uh the commonality of this experience you know you when you go to prison you're basically standing around a prison yard with people you've been hanging around with your whole life (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like, hey how you doing, Bob i haven't seen you in a while where are you, you yeah, been? right it's literally almost like that i mean you're just like because the people that go to prison come from the same basic sure. so you you're there with the people you've known your whole life you know and there you there they are again the only people that have the, the weird sort of terrifying experience of it i think are the people who come, don't come from that class of people and there are very few of them mm. so it's mostly, you know, you're looking around going, eh, I know that guy, I knew that guy. That looks like the guy I used to hang out with. I mean, it's very, it's weirdly, uh, you know, too familiar. You know, that, and so for me, when I came in, it was, yeah, this is kind of what I had been preparing for my whole life, you know I mean? Mm-hmm. These are the people I hung around with. This is the world I had grown up in. Uh, and so it was not terrifying. It really wasn't. It was, uh, It was depressing in the sense that, well, this is where I have to be and I can't leave when I want to. Sure. And, and at that time in my life, I certainly didn't really believe that I would spend 37 years in prison. No one did back then. We went through that in the United States. I don't know about in New Zealand, but in the United States, we went through this period of you know, the get tough on crime thing. You know, we're going to oh, sure. get tough and hard and we're going to increase sentences. You know, that all happened primarily in the 90s. Yes. So, uh, so in the eighties, people were serving far shorter sentences and let the t- sentence life without parole was only two years old when I came into prison. Wow. So they didn't even really know what to do with it. They were like, uh, what, what do you, what sentence do you actually have? They, was this like a super life sentence or, right. so they didn't really know what to do. They really didn't. And they would tell me, well, everybody gets out eventually. Just, you know, just do the right things and you'll get out. So sure and I, and in my early years, you know, I was a kid, you know, and I was, like I say, I mean, I didn't really change for quite a while and I continued to do the same things I'd done on the streets. I got high, I've gotten fights, you know, I was involved with violence and backing like an idiot. And, uh, and along with everybody else around me, you know, it was like, this is what we do. Sure, and so, right. And it's just a kind of, and it's a self-reinforcing thing, you know, and it's like they try to meet force with force. And of course, mm-hmm. when you're a when you're a guy like that, you know, somebody punches you in the mouth, you punch him back. I mean, that's yeah, you know, right. it's what you do. And so, so every time they punch us, we punch back. You know, and it, mm-hmm. and it just becomes this cycle of, you know, and then in, in again in the United States, there's like a, a lot of racial problems. You know, so group A hates group B, and you know, sure. group C. So, you know, it's like a whole kind of uh, it's kind of very complicated.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah.
0: I mean, I think. I think the more those things change, the more they stay the same. I mean, even even in New Zealand, and, and one thing that, again, I think the timing of, of this conversation is remarkable for this fact is that we've actually had someone attempting uh, in New Zealand now to look at criminal justice reform and saying, you know, how do we, uh, we we've had rising, rising um, prison rates in New Zealand for, uh, oh gosh, probably probably around about the same amount of time, I think particularly around the 2000s and such, maybe we're a little bit behind the United States, but certainly that conversation about being tough on crime. And and I've seen too, that you've written about this as well, which is something I'd love to dive into a little bit more, that the discussion around criminality and what we do with people who have committed crimes is that it seems to be reduced very often to who can be the toughest you know i said well you you want to give these guys 5 years we'll give them 8 years oh yeah you'll give them 8 we'll give them 10 right, right and if you right. want to get a room of people on your side real easy as a politician all you need to do is say who thinks criminals should be in jail longer and everyone goes yeah but the uh, question
1: you're, you're, you're absolutely right It's right. demagoguery at its finest and uh, <laughs> and it and that's just and and, and that's that's the uh, the political process in this country right i mean that's just uh, and a political process everywhere. I'm sad to hear it's in New Zealand too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I thought maybe this was a peculiarly American <laughs> phenomenon. But I guess it's not sad. Sorry to
0: shed your illusions.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, but no, the, the truth is, I think um, it's the, the problem is this. So, you know, when, when someone does something terrible, and these hmm. are terrible things, and it's, and I don't want to make light of the fact that these are real crimes and pe- real people are harmed and, and that's a real thing. And I, and I personally am responsible for that myself, but the problem is the, the response is the initial gut response is I want to go kill him. He sure. killed my brother, my son, my mother, you know, he harmed my sister, you know, whatever he, my children. I mean, there's just, they're horrible things mm. and I want to have vengeance. Mm. And you know, uh, the, the idea of a system of justice is we don't, go for vengeance in our society we you know we don't because if we did that then it would just be like well they should just arrest people and take them to the victim's house and say what do you want us to do with them yeah right Right? Right. i mean that would be the logical thing you know it's like uh we'll just we'll just we'll just kill them off and uh, that solves the problem right there yeah but, but the but the reality is that's uh that's, that's the real, that's the problem that you can't do. it. once you do that, you've gone down this road where we're moved backwards in society. Mm-hmm. And, and politicians figured out if they keep poking at that sore right there, they can yes. always find someone. And, and, I, and I have to interject this too. This is an important point. I don't want to miss this because it just occurs in my mind. Mm-hmm. So I have met with a lot of uh, family members of, of murder victims. I have sat down with mothers and sisters and wives and brothers and fathers of people who have been murdered. Every single one of them that I have met has said they do not believe that some kind of endless vicious retribution is what we should have. They don't believe that. What they do believe is they believe that the best thing the best thing that can happen is, is find ways to take people who have committed these terrible crimes find ways to help them grow and become better human beings so that it doesn't happen again. And mm. that actually gives them some sense of peace. Mm. Now, the problem is the, the political system that wants more prisons, and there's a whole other you know, pile of reasons for that. Yes, You can go into that too if you want to, but we may be talking until you know <laughs> next week if we keep I going. I nowhere
0: else to be, man. It's all good.
1: <laughs> I, 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 I'm, yeah. I'm sitting right here. I'm comfortable, so we can talk as long as you want. But the, the thing is, is there's always going to be someone who yeah. has trouble with that, understandably, yeah. and and and, we, and have to have sympathy for them, and they deserve sympathy. But so if the, so, they'll find that one person who's just at their worst moment, who's really angry, who really you know can't stand this any longer. Uh, it, I think there's a kind of um, those people are the ones they put in front. And I, like I say, I've had these conversations with people whose family members were murdered and they always tell me, you know, no one ever comes and asks me what I think. Yeah. And, and They've done really good surveys on this. There's been some really good academic studies of this have been done. The vast majority of crime victims, once you get past that initial sense of outrage and, you know, and, and which is completely understandable again, mm. you know, have to be sympathetic to that. But once people get past that, that's not what they want. They want, they want like, let find a way to heal people. And so this doesn't happen again. Like that's the smarter move long term. So yeah. but this, is, you know, this is a very complicated thing to, uh, to get through
0: to people. Um, well, I mean, you know. it is, and it's not, I mean, this is the thing that I've, I've, when I've looked at this, um, in that when I, when I've looked at this, I think the emotive issue is the one that I think is, is, is on the one hand, legitimate, like, and I, and I think you've acknowledged that very well that if a person is in pain and that pain, you know, you, you can't just say to them, well, yes, look, you're in pain, but you're not being practical. Like, you know, you can, <laughs> um, when somebody's in that situation, that's a thing to acknowledge. But I, I guess the question that I've asked myself as I've looked at this is really to say too, when it comes to our prison population, what really is our goal? Like, what do we really want here? Um, because when we have a person who's committed a crime and we go, okay, cool. So somebody's, somebody's committed a crime and they need to be punished, somehow uh i mean there's the question of what's an appropriate punishment as well which is a you know conversation as long as your arm too right then to say okay well look let's say we we put this person behind bars and we do it for two years or five years or 10 years or 20 years or whatever it is uh eventually that person gets out again what what do we want with this person now Uh, and I mean, I don't know what the rates are like in the U S but in New Zealand, I think the recidivism rate is, is something like 50%, uh, as a baseline. And then for youth offenders, it's as high as something like 70, 71, 72 or something like that. And it says to me that we, we like the idea of a punishment, but we don't really have anything bigger than that in our minds. We're like, How can we brutalize these people, embarrass these people, shame these people into being better? And it's not working, but the alternative seems like we're not going, you know, we're going air quotes against soft on crime. Right. Right. Well,
1: and again, so, so you're, you're right, but let's. So for like, okay, I can only, and I can speak, I can only speak for the United States because I don't know the reality in, in, in your country, but I will say this in the United States, as of today in the United States, it's the safest it's ever been in this country in the history it's, of this country. I don't know how it is in New Zealand, but I'm I mean, through
0: here as well. I, I check yeah, that out yeah, as well. Yeah.
1: Yep. So See, yeah. this is this is the real problem, and it, the, the, so I think people in general are pretty poorly informed, and mm. they think it's they think the world is far more dangerous than it really is. They think that there are more violent crimes happening than there really are Mm. Uh, and and i think they get whipped up into this hysteria and and i guess we have to talk directly to it there there are people that you know the prison system the prison industrial complex is what we've come to call the united states they benefit from this there are groups who benefit from this whether it's people who build the prisons the people who staff prisons the people who work in prisons uh, you know various political people Depending on their, you know, their political stripes, you know, get get advantages out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, 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 but more to the point of your question, exactly. So the real question becomes, like you said, so what do we want to really do with people while they're in prison? What's the goal of the the person yeah. that the, this person has committed a crime? That there there had there has to be some pe- penalty for that. I've no argument. I am not a prison abolitionist. i that's not my way. Of, there has to be some penalty for this. But the problem becomes. What is the penalty? And then first and foremost, are you in prison to be punished or is your punishment being in prison? Right. And, and if you're dying, that's a philosophical debate that goes on rages in this country. So yeah. some people believe that you go to prison to be punished. And if right. you believe that, then any treatment is fine. You can yeah. Put someone on a wall and have people come in and throw rocks at them. Hey, they're here to be punished, right? Sure. Yeah. But if your punishment is being in prison, which I think is more the European model, Mm. Your punishment is being in prison. Now, what are we going to do with you in prison? Is a whole separate issue. Yes. If if we're going to take you and we're going to say, okay, you have a drug problem, so we're going to get you into drug treatment. You you have a problem with you know whatever your various problems might be. You had problems with your family. You don't know how how to have good relationships. We're going to help you learn how to do that. In 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 Norway, for instance, uh, people in the United States. Or uh, people in Norway, when they go to prison, when they arrive in prison, the first thing they tell them is, "Our job is to get you out of prison as fast as possible, safely." Wow! Now, and if you think about that, if you if you approach it from that angle, and let's be real, they have one of the lowest recidivism rates in the world. So what they're doing actually works. Yeah, yeah, it does work. But again, there's there's this, you know, if so many of these, I'm like, I'm like, things are coming at me from like 10 directions here, but you know, that anyone who publishes anything will tell you the people who like what you wrote, they don't say anything. Oh, that's great. The people who don't like it, oh, they're, you know, they'll get, you know, you're, you're a piece of crap. You know what I mean? That's you. But know, you're going to hear from them because people who are unhappy about something are much more likely to say something. Yes. So, so you have, and this is, what I think, what happens in the prison system. I think mm. the majority of people actually. If you sat down and explained to them, okay, so this is what we're going to do because we want this outcome. I think the majority of people anywhere would go. No, oh, that makes sense. I mean, we, we're going to have to let them out sooner or later. We should probably try to fix them a little bit and get them out where they can be more successful. Mm. So I think that's you know, and this is like this. And and I, if you guys are going through this down there, I'm sorry for your luck. But uh, this is uh, it's it's like a never-ending battle. And there's all and. In, and the problem is, it becomes, it goes from one outrage to the next. Yeah. So, so tomorrow, you know, God forbid, but something terrible happens in Auckland, mm. and all of a sudden, people are going, "Yeah, we got to walk all these bastards up, and we're going to show them," you know, and then, and yeah. then it it'll gradually peter out, and then something else will happen because bad things happen in life, you know, things, yeah. you know, and and you and you can, I think that's a In some ways, it's a mark of how safe we really are, is that we're so outraged when something bad actually happens. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Very complicated. It really is. It's a really complicated question. I wish I could uh, answer this, but I think we will not solve this problem this morning.
0: (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, I I think that these are the, you know, when I started to look into this as well, you know, better answers come from better questions. And that, to me, is is what the, the genesis of this is. When I, when I first start to look at it, is to say, and I mean, I think you articulated it so well. We're saying, well, look, if our goal is to punish these people, well, okay, let's let's just punish the man. Let's just, you know, yeah, we'll just they'll, they can sleep on the floor, and we'll just give them bread and water, and and you know, okay, yeah, well, all right, cool. So now that we've done that for a, a year, five years, ten years, or whatever, what is what has that done for us? And, and, you know, for us as a society, even if I'm being purely pragmatic, independent of how I feel about how prisoners should be treated, if I've created a system where 50% of the people who come through it return at a minimum, then I go, well, is that the, the best way to go? And the, I think the role of the media is something that, I mean, they're an easy whipping boy as well, right? So, yeah, oh, yeah, why not? Media you, for let's whip them. But, uh, you know, and it it kind of speaks to our own human nature as well, right? Like, you know, you mentioned before, we tend to notice negative more than positive. And so, you know, you have a story of, uh, you know, nobody, you know, what's not in the news, all the stories of somebody who got out of prison and nothing happened.
1: Exactly. And, 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 you know, in in an interesting sort of odd twist, uh, you know, in the United States, at least, and I suspect this is again, one of these things that are pretty universal, Mm -hmm. You know. so convicted murderers who have served a lot of time hmm. uh, in, in the United States, their recidivism rate is less than 1%. Wow. You know, you would assume, well, these are the really uh, people. So you are going to be like the most likely to come back. They're not. They're less right. than 1% actually. And yeah. that's usually because uh, they get out, they're older. And <laughs> right. a lot of these things are really just connected to age and maturity mm. and These are, these are really like fundamental, simple things. And they happen to everyone, right? As you got older in your life, you become more responsible, right? I mean, that's what people do. You know, when you're 18 years old, you're an irresponsible person. And, uh, and when you become 30 years old, you go, "Hmm, maybe I should be getting a little more responsible. (laughs) And when you get to my age, you're like, man, I don't, I'm not going to cross that street when I shouldn't. That's a dumb idea. Right was something you would have never thought when you were nineteen, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are a lot of these things are just you know, and, and 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 I can also say, and this is statistically true, in the United States, in California, in 1980, when they had a fairly much more liberal prison system policies as far as letting people out and as far as the kind of treatment people receive, sure. about 25 percent of people who paroled went came back to prison. Okay, by by around 2000 after. 20 years of we're going to get tough and we're going to really show you how rough we can be 75% of people who got out came back to prison. Yeah. Wow. You know, I mean, if you brutalize and traumatize people, it's very rarely do people go, wow, I feel so much better now that you treated me like that. I'm a better human being
0: today. There's something, sorry to jump in, but there's something in that just really kind of strikes with me as well. Because here's the lesson, as well, one of the many, as I listen to this as well, you know, is that this is not a conversation about what we do with really bad people. So if you're listening to this right now and thinking, hey, man, it's interesting that you're having this conversation about what we do with the air quotes, worst of the worst. This is what I look at in terms of what is our approach for helping people. And to me, the the prison system is an amplified version of the fact that our default system is usually a guilt, shame, fear-based system. We believe, uh, and you might have experienced it in your workplace, you might have experienced it in your family, that if something goes wrong, our best tool at the moment is, well, if I make that person feel so bad, they'll never do it again. And on the one hand, I understand the instinct, but the evidence behind it, and the, again, the, the prison system is just an amplified version of this, or it's a, not so much amplified, actually, it's just a more um, emotive version, I suppose, shows us that that doesn't change anybody. It doesn't help anybody. If anything, it makes things worse. Agreed. I mean
1: there we are I mean there's really no other, I mean I don't I don't think there's anything else I can say to that other than I agree completely and yeah. you know look at we can look at it in child rearing you know I mean right. uh, you you I think we've learned over the centuries that you know beating our children mercilessly and throwing them in closets and you know sure. and treating them like they're not humans is a bad idea mm-hmm. and if we treat our children better and if we correct our children with love and compassion and sure. hold them accountable for what they've done, but do it in a way that says, I still love you and care about you, but you shouldn't have done that. Yeah. You get a much better result. Yeah. Somehow or other people have this thing. They can't apply that in a more broad way. They go, well, but not for them. That, that no those people, We need to throw rocks at them. That'll, that'll cure them. Yeah. And it that doesn't work. It doesn't work. And in and, and reality is it's never worked in society. Right. I mean. Yeah. You know, well, it's a very
0: childlike question as well. Like you know, you mentioned if even for yourself when you realised, and I, th- I think that's probably the, the next place we should we take this conversation too. That for your own personal journey of change, you know, when you started to realise that, well, what I'm really looking for here is to be loved, and and that is something that is true from the you know infant days. That's a very childlike question, and in some ways, as a grown up, it feels kind of beneath our station to say am I the way I am because I still don't have an answer to that question. But from everything that I've looked into, man, like, you know, I I've actually had the privilege of working with, you know, like holiday programs with kids and things like that. And if anything, it just showed me that, you know what adults, uh, I, I, we are still just children. You know, we just have different tantrums. Uh, yeah. but it's the same questions, the same things that we needed. So for you, I don't know how many years it had been as 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 part of the, the you know the prison system where these um, things started to occur to you. But what, do you remember what the beginning of that was when you started to go? Well, hang on a minute. Maybe there's something more to who I am or who I can be than what I have been. What was the start of that for you?
1: I think, I think probably that, that, that there are two transformative experiences. Well, I, mean, I would say actually three, like, to be real about it. And again, not, no no light bulb moments in my life. I, I wish I had had a light bulb moment. That probably would have made my journey somewhat simpler. But right. um, I'm very hard-headed. So it took me getting bumped <laughs> on the head multiple times before I was like, oh, okay, maybe I shouldn't do that. But, um, you know, I, I, I met someone who who fell in love with me. And it was a kind of... Happenstance thing, and I for the maybe maybe for the first time in my life I began to entertain the thought that well maybe I am lovable, and wow. that was a really profound thing for me because I had always been in, in somewhere in my very core of my being I just felt well I'm just not lovable and and okay I'm not lovable then screw you too you know I mean that was kind of my attitude it's like well if I'm not lovable then I'll show you how unlovable I can really be right and that uh, and, and that was a real engine that drove my behavior inside of me. Um, and then sort of connected to that, but this was at the time of the AIDS crisis in the United States. And, uh, this is back in the eighties when the prison system in California was still a little more liberal. We had conjugal visits. Uh, they called them family visits. And, uh, if you were married, you could have a conjugal visit with your wife. So this woman and I decided we were going to get married. So we could have conjugal visits,
2: uh-huh.
1: uh, and um, uh, something. I'm mean, gonna let me take one little break. Something just happened on my screen here. Okay. I don't know what's going on. Uh, this package run for a determination software can be installed. I don't know why. I guess I'm gonna. <laughs> write, I'm gonna hit you. I see. I think I've returned.
0: Oh, you Oops. have.
1: What I f- don't know what happened. I got this. The screen went blank. And then, uh, and at the same time I got this phone call from someone who did, was a, 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 you know, accidental dial. Oh, I right. Think, these things connected somehow. So I answered <laughs> the phone and it's, it's a woman saying, I don't know who you are. And I'm like, well, I don't know who you are either. Why did you call me? You know, <laughs> I'm like, what the heck technology, man? It's very complicated.
0: <laughs> that must have blown. How much, how much of that, oh, this is a tangent, but, um, yeah. how much of, how much of the technology, technological change were you aware of by the time you'd come out that, that, things had changed like that? Because that's quite a shock. Well, system.
1: you know, I, I I was aware of it because we had television. So, I mean, yeah, I could sure. see all the things. But, yeah. you know, uh, to 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 have someone tell you what an iPhone 8S is like and to have one and use it is really two different things. Yeah, and yeah. I, I, at first, I have to admit, I was like, why is everybody so jazzed up about these phones? I understand now. It's very <laughs> they are, for, I mean, I was a big Star Trek fan, and this is much better right. than a Star Trek communicator by far. It's way better. No doubt. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and and what we're doing right here, when I was a kid, when I first got out, I would tell people, I'm a traveler from the 70s, can you tell me about the modern world? That's right, kind of, yeah. That's really what it felt like, because I had been in really since the 70s, and, you know, imagine the difference from the 70s to now.
0: Oh, for sure. Yeah, and, well, that, that, that was why okay. it struck me. I thought, man, it'd just be yeah it's very important so let's get back to then your story then so you you'd mentioned how you'd you'd met somebody and then you'd um right. you'd, you'd married so you're able to have these conjugal visits and then
1: right. so what happened was uh she knew that i had used intravenous drugs and she said look you know I'd, i would like you to get an hiv test before we you know before we have sex which is a completely understandable thing sure i asked for the test uh, went through a whole lot of Hassles to actually get a test. Finally got the test, and they told me I was positive. And and at that time, if you were positive for HIV in prison in California, they sent you to a different prison to this isolation wing. And uh, it was you know everyone was really freaked out about HIV at that point in time in this country. I probably everywhere I imagine. Sure. Um, and as it turned out, I, I was a false positive And you know, a couple months later, I was I was released from the isolation unit and all that. But during that process, and I talk about it in my book, I ended up in solitary confinement for a considerable period of time because they really just didn't know what to do. They were they were freaked out. They didn't know it's what to do. The whole HIV thing kind of spooked everyone. And, uh, and, it, and it was a real um, – I had, I guess, kind of one of those transformational moments where I had just become so stressed out and so – overwhelmed by everything that was going on, uh, that I sort of, uh, I sort of like fell into this like natural, uh, uneducated form of meditation that I had never really done before. Okay. And it led me to a kind of, you know, I don't know if I want to call it a spiritual awakening. That's probably sounds too, you know, but I mean, I definitely opened up a different channel of perception to me. Yeah. Uh, and and it and it opened up some a, a window into me that I had never had open before. And I think it helped me to begin to see the world in a bigger and more
0: um what did you start to see when you look into that window? Like what was the view?
1: well I think I I you know I wrote I wrote a piece one time called Seeking Peace.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And uh it's been published in a lot of places and it's been been republished in a lot of places. Um but I think what I found out was, I had always felt in my heart at that point in my life that I was not really connected to anyone or anything. I was sort of, this, you know, individual entity sort of, you know, crashing through life. And, uh, and I, and I think what I the thing that I came to the conclusion, and I felt maybe more than anything else was, I was intimately connected to everyone and everything. Mm. And, and it's a, I mean, it's not it's a very Buddhist sort of concept, but that was the feeling I had, is that I was, I was part of like this big web, and I was in it. I wasn't outside of it. I was in it, and and it really had a, uh, it had a profound effect on how I felt about my place in the world and my my relationship to other human beings. Uh, I came that, away. From...
0: Did that realization come to you in one moment though, or was that over a period of time when you were in solitary? How did that unfold?
1: Well, I, you know, I have to say that particular feeling that was a moment that came in a moment that was after a period of like, I didn't know what else to do. I just felt completely overwhelmed by the circumstances. And I just sort of, I just started to try to find a place inside of myself that where there was peace because I didn't feel much peace at all. Mm. And, And I think that the there, there was a process that got me to that moment. Yes. You know, uh, but when I got to that moment, it was sort of, it was like this sort of huge opening in my mind where I kind of went, huh, I'm really not alone. I'm not, I, I'm not like some, you know, alien that fell out of the sky or something or, or, a, mm. a rock or something, you know, I'm, I'm a being that's connected to every other being. Wow. And, and that feeling has never gone away. Even in moments when I question it and go, I'm connected to that guy, Ugh. you know, I mean, but, uh, but you know, so I mean, I, you know, I, I realized that I am connected to every other human and even yeah. the ones I don't like and the ones who don't like me and, and every other animal and plant and, you know, and we're all some kind of unit here on this, you know, little rock floating around in space, you know, yeah. so, and it had a really profound impact on me and it really changed much of my perception of life. And, and, and then the, the third thing in this sort of series of things that all happened in a relatively brief period of time over a couple of years, Mm. um, I had quit using like hard drugs at that point in my life, but I still smoked pot. I still drank a little bit. And of course, all these things are easily available in prisons. Uh, and then he put a memo up on the wall and they said in 30 days, we're going to start conducting random urinalysis tests. And if you test positive, you lose your visits. And I really had to say, "Hmm, what do I really want here in my life?" And you know, this is maybe one of the first times in my life where I made the right decision. I said, <laughs> "Right, I think I want to. I think I want to have love and not drugs." And you know, right. and, and that sort of, and it was, uh, and and that really was. I think that that was probably I was in my late twenties, and that was sort of the beginning. And once I stopped getting high completely. Mm. You know, everything changed, you know, and and that yeah. was really sort of the beginning of a massive, you know, I all of a sudden it's like I woke up and I went, Oh my God, what am I doing here? Why am I here? How'd this happen? Yeah, you know, in a in a metaphysical sense, you know. I mean, I knew the literal answer to that, but um so yeah, I mean those were probably those three things kind of happened over a period of several years, but they culminated in that sort of that's what led me on the trajectory to becoming, you know, the who I am today.
0: There's so much in that. My goodness. Um have you read uh, or heard of um Johan Hari's book Chasing the Scream?
1: It rings a bell. I don't know that I've read it though. I don't know So that's...
0: it it's a uh, it's it, it particularly is um addressing our approach to the drug war. Oh. And and you know everything that kind of goes along with that, but the, one of the central points that he makes there which resonated so much when you were telling your story was that again, with as with other crime, um, that you know people look at drug offenses and say, well, that's just poor choices. And the point that he makes is saying that if you look at the background of people who have drug and alcohol problems, there's a connection problem. There's always a connection problem. And to listen to you is to hear somebody say, when I got connection, the drugs went away and we go well you know maybe if you tried harder maybe if you really wanted it maybe if you were more disciplined maybe if i gave you more severe penalties and yet that's in his book and then listening to you right now i suddenly had a sense of love and connection and then i thought oh, maybe i'd rather have that so uh, that's
1: pretty much it in a nutshell it really is you know yeah. and 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 i had been penalized about as bad as you possibly could be oh, for and sure. I, it did not stop me from getting high one bit. Oh. I was getting high in the jail when I was going to the courthouse to be sentenced to spend the rest of my life in prison. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean it was like and 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 I got high for a whole other set of things. And it and, mm. and it really was that sense of no connection, no love, no no feeling of belonging, you know, mm. uh and 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 every person I've ever met who was a drug addict and used drugs has some version of that story. Yeah. And it's like, and, and, and also almost everyone I've ever met who stopped using has some version of my story, which is, well, you know, I, I've, you know, I got into this program and I've met all these wonderful people. I fell in love with this girl. I, you know, I had a child. I mean, all these various things that say I'm connected to something more important than just me. Yeah. You go, eh, I don't really think I need drugs. I don't need drugs. Drugs. What, what, what's, what do I need drugs for? When, sure. you know, before it was like, I would rather die than stop using. It's just a weird, and, you're, and there's no question that that is fundamentally true. I'm certain
0: of. Oh yeah, 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 and, and it connects with, um, you, you know, I think we've we've kind of dabbled around the outside of this, but I'm, I, I think we should just leap into it a little bit more as well. When we're talking about this idea of change, and I guess the spiritual element to it, um, if I was to put this in my own words, and I'd love to hear how you'd describe it, um, that I have learned. Among many things, I mean, look, I've been, I've been, uh, you know, involved in churches and, and been more seriously as a, you know, as a Christian since I was about twenty odd. Um, but what I, you know, what I started to see was that, you know, I don't care who you are, we all have this thing inside of us that, you know, we recognise truth kind of with a capital T when we experience it, and and when that moment happens, you you are changed without effort. You know, it, it's not a force of will thing, but the moment that you you described it as that moment where you realize, wait a minute, I'm connected. And and once you know that you can't unknow it anymore. It's not like when you're having, you know, on a diet and you go, okay, I'm going to eat like this from now on. I'm going to try really hard, you know, but we can all have that experience. And when you look at meaningful lasting change for people, those moments, you know, it's interesting because at the start you said, yeah, you know, there wasn't really just one moment, but you know, I have found that to be true for me and for other people too, that yes, there's a process, but equally, there tends to be that aha moment where somebody experiences truth on a deeper level that is unique to to people, Oh, universal, I should say, universal to people, that when we experience something like that, it's it's positive and it's helpful and it changes us and that's just the way we are and I, I find it breathtaking.
1: Yeah, I can't deny that. And, uh, I guess, um, uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, I, you're, it, there, there's no question that, 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 that moment in that, in that solitary confinement cell at Vacaville prison in California, um, you know, it opened something up inside of me that had never been opened before. Mm. And it clearly had a huge impact on the rest of my life. There's no question mm. about that. And, and it, and it, you know, I had, I had been, I've been raised a Catholic. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm still a Catholic kind of, you know, I'm not a, I'm not like a hardcore. Or anything like yeah, that. Sure. I'm wide open to pretty much everyone. If it gets you to a good place, then good for you. Yeah. Right. Uh, but I feel like, um, you know, I had been raised in a, you know, my mother was, my mother had been, I don't know if the right term is excommunicated, but she, you know, she had okay. married, like she had divorced her first husband who was a Catholic, okay. married my father who was a Protestant. Mm. they got married 8 days before I was born maybe some connection there who knows uh, <laughs> Do the math, I right. only these things out fairly recently actually I think <laughs> never knew their wedding anniversary and now I know why you know right. so okay. you know but uh, these are all you know things again god bless them and I hope that they're in, in in a good place now they should be you know but uh you know it's um yeah these there's no question that when you experience something like that it changes the way you it changes the way you look at yourself and it changes the way you look at everyone else. And mm-hmm. all of a sudden that person on the other side of the room that before you just saw as some foreign entity that was like not connected to you at any level, mm. some point in you now, some place in you, you go, yeah, I don't like that guy, but he's part of me too. And I'm part of him at some level. And that's so I can't just despise and hate him. And right. it just makes things. It's really, it's a, and it and I guess when I say that it wasn't an all at once moment, that moment did happen, but it took me a while to like sure. fully incorporate that and, and make it a part of the, the, the everyday functioning me. That's sure. what I mean, I think.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I think you start to learn. I know, I know from my own experiences too that what you tend to notice is you've got a lot of other behavior that's connected to that. Like you have that one moment and then you realize, well, wait a minute, if that's true, then the way I respond like this means, okay, well, let's, okay, that's a thing. That also means I behave like this because of this right and it's that right unpacking right. i suppose over time after that you know oh
1: yeah yeah there, there is and there is like a lifetime of unpacking That's yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> yes I, i'm almost 58 years old and i feel like i've maybe got part way to maybe almost half of
0: yeah 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 like every time you think you've, you've got there right you suddenly realize oh wait okay okay oh, so, so let's talk about the program then, because I, I think what's interesting then is that when this moment, you know, this moment happens to you and you start, you start down this pathway of going, wait a minute, I'm, I'm connected to these people now. Uh, you know, the prisoners as much as the guards, as much as the anybody, right? And then you start to go, okay, well, you know, the, the, the program that you created is, you know, an extension of that, you know, that, that uh, insight that you had for you that now was available to everybody and you know you mentioned as well in some of your writings too that you know we i've noticed a, a phenomenon of human behavior is we tend to think an experience is completely unique to us and then we start talking to other people and go well actually yeah they 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 feel similar way and you know your conversations with people about uh you know other prisoners is about what they wanted out of their, their time what they wanted out of their lives Anyway, I'll I'll pass that over to you, but tell me more about this process of how you started to develop the the program.
1: And we're talking about the honor program now? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so I think, so basically, well, my my then wife, uh, we have a child together. Uh, I I moved to a different prison to be closer, to make it easier for visiting. Um, And when I get to this prison, it's a really, really dysfunctional place. It's really, really just, you know, very, very poorly managed, a uh, lot of violence, really just a, no other word for it. just very dysfunctional prison. And I'm there a few years, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with sort of issue with my daughter, you know, getting to know my daughter through the visiting room, which is a very complicated thing in and of itself. And then sure. the disintegration of that relationship with her mother over this, the loss that the state took away conjugal visits. So that sort of kind of pulled the underpinnings of the relationship of yeah, didn't have any real privacy or intimacy and you know and and she had her own problems that I, i'm not going to go into here but you know but um so i i re- i'm looking around and the place is just a catastrophe and this is also not coincidentally that the time when the government is just pounding the fist down on everyone they've taken everything away they took mm-hmm. the weights away they took you know personal clothing away and they took all the things that made a person feel a little bit like as, if, as an individual is able to yeah. express themselves a little bit, have things to do. They took the teachers out. They took the programs out. I mean, just everything, we, we're going to crack down on prisoners and we're going to grind them into the dirt and they'll become better people by doing that. <laughs> of course, is completely insane, right? And I've been around long enough in prison by that time to know this is never going to work. This is terrible. right. But I figure, what can I possibly do? And this is where the idea of, so what if we were to open up a yard on the, the prison that I was at that time had four separate facilities that were. They, there was no movement between them.
2: Mm. And
1: I said, like, what well, if we were to open up one of these facilities and say, anyone who wants to come to this facility has to be willing to adopt a different lifestyle. You know, mm. no, more, no, more, no more racial politics, no more gang stuff, you know, no more drugs. You know, so sort of ba- basically people who had were willing to make that kind of transformation that I had made in my life were willing to undertake that for themselves. Uh, you know would, would they would do that a whole lot of circumstances lucky things that are more detailed in my book if anyone wants to read it but um they decide okay we're going to implement this yard as a t- pilot project and of course everybody assumes there's no way this will ever work. this is this is not this will right. never work. literally like the month before the program starts on this facility they had had something like 250 disciplinary reports in that one month
0: how many like, how many people were in the prison
1: in that well in that particular facility there was about 800 people so basically wow. about about a quarter of the people were having disciplinary infractions every month i mean yeah, that's right. how bad the place was it was just a catastrophe right true sure. within 90 days there was not a single disciplinary infraction on the same yard nothing because all the people who were unwilling to want to do that. They had left and uh-huh. the people who had come into the yard were people who wanted to live a better life. And they were like, ah, great. And, and it was a weird phenomenon. I mean, it, it had a, uh, it, I mean, at first, the, the, even the staff were like, wow, this is fantastic. This is amazing. But But literally within a year, the staff were talking amongst themselves like, well, if these guys aren't doing anything wrong, do we really need 10 guards standing around in the yard watching people take a nap in the grass? (laughs) I I actually heard that conversation and those literal words being said, like, you know, they're just taking naps in the grass. Why are we standing here watching them? There's no reason for us. That's not good for us. Right. That's when the backlash began. And Uh so for years and years, we fought to keep this yard open through legal channels. We made friends with, you know, the uh, the at the state, California State Senate Majority Leader at the time was a woman named Gloria Romero, who I've had the tremendous pleasure of reconnecting with out here in the streets. We had uh, we had lunch together at a hip, trendy restaurant in Venice, California, and all that. So it was a really, <gasps> very surreal experience, you know. Yeah, she uh, yeah. introduced legislation in the California uh, Legislature to make honor programs mandatory in all of the prisons in California. Okay. legislature by bipartisan majorities of republicans and democrats we mobilized hundreds of supporters people on the outside you know families friends academics and it went to the governor's desk and of course the department of corrections uh, went behind the scenes and encouraged the governor to veto the bill because it would just been too hard to do that but they just didn't they didn't want it to happen because Again, if the prison system starts operating smoothly and people aren't killing each other and all the other things, then you don't need as many people standing there with clubs and pepper spray, you know, and handcuffs. They then have to start bringing in teachers and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, it's, and it became kind of a battle of interests, you know, I mean, and, and ultimately they had more money behind the scenes than us that we lost. Sure. But, uh, but that's, but it, but it did prove that, if you, if you open up a possibility for something like that,
2: yeah. it,
1: it flourished, and it would flourish, and it would flourish in every prison system in the world because the fundamental, I think the biggest change was the idea of the place was reward good behavior, mm. not just punish bad behavior. So yeah. You operate on negative reinforcement exclusively. If yeah. you do something wrong, we'll punish you. If yeah. you do something right, we don't care. Whatever, it's irrelevant. It doesn't matter to us. if you do something wrong, oh, we're gonna be there, we're gonna you're gonna exact penalties on you. But the problem is, as anyone who takes the first year of introduction to psychology will learn, mm-hmm. negative reinforcement doesn't work long term on human beings. They get no. activated to it and they go, eh, so what? Eh, yeah, probably well, some more. Positive yeah. reinforcement works forever, weirdly. Yeah. Because we love to be rewarded for doing the right thing. And if you reward people for doing the right thing, and I always used to tell people, so they would say, Well, but if you don't get rewarded for doing the right thing, and I went, Do you get a paycheck every couple of weeks? <laughs> that's what a paycheck is. It's a reward for doing the right thing, right? That's what it is. That's what Who your paycheck be? is a reward. You don't go to work because, just because that's what you have to do. And every Whoa. once in a while, if you make a mistake, they throw you out in the street, then no one will yeah. go to work. You get yeah. rewarded for doing the right thing. You know, so that's that's why it worked, And it works yeah. extraordinarily well. Um, and, and it's one of the things I hope to be involved in from out here is, is figuring out how to get that kind of thing into the prisons more broadly, because I believe it's the right path to take. And I think it would reform our prison system. Fundamentally, if you open things like this up all throughout the prisons, mm. guys who want to fun- function properly will gravitate toward that. And very quickly, the prison system will separate out into people who want to program and people who don't. And the mm-hmm. people who want to program will ultimately become the vast majority because the majority of people in prison, they actually do want to program. They do want to function properly. And they wanted to find out ways to make amends for the things that they've got themselves in prison. For. That's yeah. a huge part of That was a huge part of the program was setting up opportunities for guys to do things for the community, to do positive things for society on the outside. We donated food from inside prison to homeless shelters
0: get out we did that's awesome yep wow so that's the kind and,
1: and this and guys would love to be involved in this and, and i want to be really clear female prisoners no different but mm. women oh sure or there's no different I, when i say guys i mean everyone in prison but yeah. uh yeah i think it's a uh, it's, it's the reality is people in prison want to do good things they just are very rarely given any opportunity to do those good things
0: sure well, and as you speak too, you know, it's so much of it is, is negatively reinforced. You know, when I'm, when I'm hearing that, I, you know, I flash to my experiences again of, of kids programs and things like that. Again, you get a whole bunch of kids in a room and you tell them, okay, well, if you step out of line, we'll destroy you. Um, but if you behave yourself, then we don't really care. I mean, you just know. They just, just want know. attention usually. So they'll just do bad then because I've yeah.
2: got some attention.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and there's that principle as well of, of, you know, if you, and, and that's why I love the fact you called it the honor program. Did you get much blowback from that, by the way, when you called it the honor program? Because well,
1: you know, the, the, the Interesting story on that. And, I, and, I, and I'll share this story. This, uh, <laughs> so uh, long-term when we finally reached a point where we had pressured the department of corrections into accepting this program as being implemented, even though they had managed to get the bill defeated, yeah. uh, they, they ultimately came and they said, okay, We'll implement the program, but we will not call it the Honor Program because we don't like the word "honor" associated with prisoners. So they changed it to the Progressive Programming Facility.
0: Whew! Electrifying. That's damn. Deep, right? Oh that's deep. man! If you step back and think about
1: that, you go. That's kind of deal. why would they do that? That doesn't make any sense. But yeah, oh, they were adamant on that. It will not be called the Honor Program. We refuse Gosh. to call it. So you know, this is what you're dealing with at some level.
0: Well, you know, and, and to me it, it circles back as well to again what your intent is. And and you know, you made a point there which is, is relevant to New Zealand as well. And that cause we don't have a, a privatized prison prison system in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Um, but there has been discussion of should we go there. And I mm-hmm. think what you know, what we need to be aware of, and what I heard when you were sharing your stories of of the guards there too, is that you do start to have to be aware of what are people's incentives. That if you are a if you are a private prison operator, your incentive is to keep people in prison.
2: Oh, without a doubt, without yeah, doubt. yes, and absolutely.
0: It, at the very least, and look, I'm I'm usually more kind of libertarian when it comes to how much role government should have. But at the very least, a government wants less people in prison in principle. If I can mm-hmm. have a smaller prison expenditure, um, and in fact, in New Zealand, there was one politician, Bill English, who was a um, nearly became our prime minister. In fact, I think no, he was caretaker for a while. Anyway, point being, his whole approach was to approach prisons from a fiscal point of view, because if you try and sell it as a a social uh thing, people react too heavily. But at least if you say, well look, prisoners cost us ninety thousand dollars a year. If we get rid of twenty-five percent of them we save X billion dollars, people go, Oh, okay
1: right right oh I like that idea
0: <laughs> yeah right but again it just it speaks to what is the incentive here like what is what is prison for like why why are we p- putting people in this place and once as you mentioned the the white hot kind of rage of of vengeance has died down then what right then what and as you mentioned if if we want people to be able to learn from these Mistakes that they've made, and as you mentioned, legitimate punishments or whatever. We got to be aware of what's the incentive for people staying there, what's the incentive for people getting out. You know, we can't be naive, in my opinion.
1: Well, I don't disagree. I I mean, I think, yeah, I think we have to look at this and we have to look at it holistically. I think that's the right word, and we have to figure out what ultimately serves the interests of society and what serves the interests of the individuals. Mm. And ultimately, it seems to me that. What we want is we want a prison system that effectively prevents crime and mm. effectively deals with people who are not yeah. capable of functioning successfully in society and helps them to be able to function successfully in society. Because it's much cheaper, yeah. again, and at so many levels, it's much cheaper for, for a guy or, or woman who gets out who is now a taxpaying working citizen than right. someone that the taxpayers are supporting inside of a prison. So yeah. it's really not, it's a very simple equation at many levels, you know? I mean, there are all these other emotional issues that I know are very complicated, but the, the bottom line issue isn't that complicated.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, um, I don't know how relevant this is, but I'll go there for a moment too. I think one thing, and you know, you talked about this in terms of restitution as well, that the way our, our justice system is set up at the moment is that although I might commit a crime against you, um, I am punished by the state as though I had committed my crime against the state. So there's, there's very little in terms of how you feel about this. Cause I, it's, it's my, also my understanding, my, my attempts to understand too those who have been victims of serious crime as well, that even when I am punished by the state, that is kind of disconnected from you. It's almost like, you know, your parents get involved, like, you know, your kids fight. And then your mum comes in and says, okay, that's it. Go to your room. Mm. But you're there saying, yeah, but, but look what they did to me. You, you haven't addressed any of that. Whereas I know, you know, a huge element of, I guess, what you'd call broadly restorative justice programs is acknowledging the harm that I have directly caused you and making amends for that, which is really what, isn't that what we want? It seems to be more in line with what we really want if we've been victims there.
1: It's, it's a, you know, that's a, that's a really complicated thing because on the one hand, I mean, you're absolutely right. And there's no question that. Uh, victims of crime they ha- have a central role in what's going on and should have a central role in what's going on. There's no question mm. about that. Mm. The, the problem I think is, is there's, there's a place where it becomes, are we a system of justice, which is a, which is in a sense is a kind of impersonal thing. It's a, like a concept as opposed to an action. Right. And, and how do we balance that, that idea of sort of that, you know, the blindfold, with the scales, you know, I'm not I'm just weighing this objectively, you know, sure. right, that's, that's sort of the embodiment of that idea. <clears throat> and how do we balance that with the real and legitimate need of people who have been victimized by crime to have a sense that their personal interests have been addressed? And I think there are ways to do that. Um, and I think, again, in, in my experience and, and much of what I've, I've read, you know, pretty high quality work that's been done on this the majority of crime victims aren't looking for vengeance per se. Mm-hmm. They're looking for healing. And, uh, and and you know, the, the prison system as it's currently constituted in this country, generally speaking, does not promote that. They don't really mm-hmm. like the idea that, you know, uh, the crime victim John Smith comes in to meet Bob Jones who, you know, who killed his brother. Mm-hmm. That they make, really make that very difficult to happen. There's a lot of barriers erected to that. Uh, and I think that there should be more programs available to make those kind of things happen, and I think it ultimately would be better for everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I have known I have known people in prison whose the families of their uh, the person that they killed have essentially adopted them in a, yes. in, a in, in a functional yes. way. It's a really amazing thing. Um, I'm I'm working with a woman in Long Beach, California. Her name is Melanie Washington. Uh, her her son was murdered. Uh, she is in direct communication with the young man who killed her son mm. and he is mentoring him to wow. help him become a better person to get out and something like that not happen again. I met her, her other son at a victim's, uh, what they call a healing circle where people like myself who had been in prison for killing someone sit with people who, whose family members had been murdered to wow. hear their stories and allow them a place to speak their truth and we sort of are witnesses to that and, and give them a place to sort of, you know, uh, maybe not directly, you know, get to it, but at least have a kind of someone as a stand in that can then say from our perspective, how did all of this come about and how, what was our experience of it? It's a beautiful thing. It's a, a program run by a guy named Javier Stouring. It's called Healing Dialogue and Action. It's in Los Angeles. And uh, he worked for a long time with the Archdiocese of uh, the Catholic Church in Los Angeles. Wonderful man! He does these healing circles. They're just—they're so powerful. They're just like—I mean, no one walks out of there without being profoundly impacted. Mm. Uh, and, and he would like to do those in every prison in California. And of course, he goes through a lot of struggle to try to get that inside prisons.
0: Sure, sure. So, but it's—it's it's that connection story again, though, isn't it? It's that connection oh, thing again. We exactly get
1: people right. together. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it absolutely is a connection story. Yeah.
0: Wow. So then, with the time we've got left, um, let's talk about what's what is next for you then, because we talked a little bit about your desire to become a, a life coach and what the next stage of this journey looks like for you. So, why don't you speak on that a little bit then? Where's where do you see then your next opportunity to contribute here and and continue with the things you've managed to, to make positive from what you know? Would some men would say was a irredeemably negative situation?
1: Right, right. Well, I think um, so. So fundamentally, you know, I I had assumed that I was going to die in prison. That's what I believed. Um, uh, There's a there's a a Vimeo that our our mutual friend uh, Sarah did called The Cost of Loss. It's on Mm -hmm. the video. It's a few minute long piece of I recorded on the phone. I recorded a piece that I wrote called The Cost of Loss. And uh and Sarah did the did the animation of the words and everything. It's really a wonderful piece. It speaks very clearly to how I felt. And it's very, very uh it's profoundly affecting for me to hear it now, you know, wow. when I'm no longer in prison. But
0: I'll put a I'll put a link of it. If you can track it down for me, I'll put a link for it. Um and
1: and Sarah knows where it is too. So uh, yeah, but yeah. uh but so so I'm out, you know, and uh and I have had to sort of obviously reassess my life. So now what do I do? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm going to continue to write. I, I, I've written for many years now. I, I plan to write a, another memoir about this experience of getting out and what the last year in prison was like and what the first year out has been like. Hmm. Um, I'm working for a, <clears throat> a couple of different non-profits that do prison rehabilitation work. I'm a grant writer and a content creator and curriculum developer and things like that. Um kind of the face of this a little bit. I'm a little bit of a unicorn. I'm the guy that had life without parole and is now out. You know, I said, oh, look at that guy. That's impossible. How, how's he here? Yeah, uh, I'm working with a couple of groups that are involved with trying to find ways to uh, end the sentence of life without the possibility of parole. I personally believe every person is possible. It's positive. Every human being is capable of positive change. Not mm. everyone does, but everyone is capable of it. And I believe that everyone should have the opportunity to go in front of a parole board and make their case. Now, sure. not every maybe not everybody gets out, but everyone should have the opportunity to present their case to the board. And I believe every single human being is capable of positive change. I feel like any other position to take is just so defeating. You know, it's like, then what are we? Why are we bothering? You know, that's kind of my feeling. You know, sure. But um, it, as I get out, I make all these connections with people. Uh, it. it turns out that I'm somehow through a bunch of interesting connections, this organization uh, called leadership that works and that runs this program called coaching for transformation. They reached out to me and said, look, we, we would like you to be a part of this uh, next cohort of people we're training. And this is a, and this is a kind of life coaching that really focuses on sort of a spiritual component and focuses on uh, equity and diversity and, and the idea of me being involved in this is I represent a very unique kind of, you know, demographic, you know, I'm a that guy who came out of prison who spent 38 years in prison and yeah, it's been a wonderful experience. Like I say, I went to the first two in-person days last weekend. Um, and the way I see it is, I think that I can bring to the table a set of qualities that I have had to develop in my own life, primarily, uh, you have to learn how to be persistent. You have to learn how to have resilience and you have Mm -hmm. to learn how to make the best out of the situation that you're in and, and find joy and peace and fulfillment in what is there, as opposed to, I will be happy when this happens. I'll be happy when that happens, which I think Uh is the, that's the overriding way most human beings live, right? Well, if only this will happen, then I'll be happy. And I'm always like, yeah, but that will never happen. You know, it's kind of like the, the, it's going to happen next week, and there's always going to be another next sure. week. So you, gotta, you know, yeah. that's kind of the uh, you know, but uh, but that's I think so. I feel like my I can help people see their lives and see the world maybe in a way that's a little bit different than the average person could. And mm-hmm. then concurrent with that, on, on a much more uh, you know, uh, for you know, ch- charitable purposes or you know, pro bono, or whatever the right word would be there. I would like to work with guys coming out of prison and develop some programs to help people with the transit, the transition, which is, it is a massively complicated transition. Oh, so, sure. And I'm blessed beyond belief. I have so many friends and so many people that have reached out to me to help me. Uh, but this is like a really, really, very complicated thing. This is not a small transition by any stretch of imagination. And I think I can set up a program. I'd like to set up some programs, for when guys first come out we could have some kind of some kind of coaching with them to sort of help them with that sort of there's a mindset that has to shift from the 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 way you live inside a prison to the way you live out here yeah there are would, fundamental differences there really are
0: could, could you go into any any detail on that at all well, I think so. The, the the biggest one
1: probably is, you know, it, when you're in prison, you're fundamentally you're kind of like, you know, like you said, you know, mom steps in and uh, sends you to your room. Well, you got sent to your room for like, a really long time. And, <laughs> and of it's very narrow as far as like what you can physically do. I mean, of course, you, you what you can do inside of yourself doesn't change no matter where sure. you are. But, you know, so it, you have to learn how to. And and I've had this problem, and I'm having this problem. And you know, when we sort of had these breakout sessions. Uh, where you sit down with your peers that you're in this class with, and you sort of like say, doing sort of practice coaching. I said the same thing to every person I talked to. I've got to figure out how to manage my time. I, wow. and like I said, you know, the only thing I miss about prison is free time. Yeah, right. there's just no free time. So I have to, and prisoners, I think all of us coming out are going to find it, and I certainly did. It's, it's very overwhelming. There are so many things to do. And mm-hmm. you want to do them all, and then right. you, you wake up at one point. You're like, "Oh my god, I've got too many things to do. How am I going to do all these things?" So I, so I, I see that as something. Uh, there's like this fundamental issue of, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know if you guys have Walmart down there, but we've got an equivalent
0: uh, called the warehouse. But I, yeah, I'm familiar with yeah, yeah. You well, know, it's it is. I
1: mean, <laughs> from coming out of prison, walking into a Walmart for the first time in my life. Yeah, sure. A- I had walked into another. <laughs> I mean, I just like my mouth was hanging open, and I right. was like, just overwhelmed with choices. And I can remember walking into the uh, the aisle, like you know, I, I have some joint problems, so I take Motrin, you know, for my joints. Okay. And I walked into this aisle looking to buy some Motrin, and okay. there were literally like twenty feet. By five rows of different kinds of payment, and I thought, how does anybody know what to pick? <laughs> and they all say they're the right one. So you're like, which one is it? I don't know. So there's a you know, and I guess this is a problem. This is a first world problem, as they say. True. Right. You know, too many choices, you know. So that that's that's a big that's one right off the top, and then just more fundamentally, it's it's building relationships in a in a in a situation that is less pressurized and less fraught with you know you know, in prison, you have to be much more guarded and you have to be much more sure. careful, you know? I mean, it's a, it can be a really tough world. They're, most most yards are not honor programs. They're mm-hmm. entirely reality, unfortunately. So le- helping people learn how to navigate the interpersonal relationships on the side of the fences and just that sense of how you manage your time and your life and the tro- choices you have. And and uh, so that I can see myself helping in all those things. And those are all just basic and there's probably a list that could go on we could talk about that one till tomorrow too so <laughs> personal relationships with people um, you know romantic relationships with people very complicated you know it's like ooh, super complicated stuff you
0: know yeah you know for what it's worth you know even even talking to you over the last uh, i suppose about an hour and a half now it's been um you know there is something that is genuinely joyful that comes across from you which i think is is wonderful to experience when I'm aware of what your background has been. Um, and for what it's worth, I want to let you know that that's something that comes across when I talk to you. Um, and I'm,
1: I'm, I I am in fact filled with joy. I really am. again, gratitude as well. I, I wake up every morning, literally just grateful that I'm out here and have this tremendous opportunity and just look forward to making the best of it.
0: Well, I want to remind people then who've been listening and, and, following along with the story too, that if, if you want to be a part of this too, you know, we've talked about connection and um, I, don't, I don't want this to sound cynical or, or, or anything, but I just think that when, when you hear something like this, I don't know how many of you have, have been listening along and, and some of you have just enjoyed it. But look, if you've, if you've been listening and, and something has stirred for you, um, there is an opportunity if you want to be a part of this. We talked about it at the very beginning that because Ken's looking to become a coach, he's got a GoFundMe that's up now. Um, and what can people just search for, search for your name on GoFundMe or, I mean, I'll put a link in the description, but if they want to.
1: Yeah, I, I think I, I I'm not hundred percent sure how this works actually, but I, I don't know if you look for Kenneth E Hartman, if that brings it up, but it's lifer for life coach training. That's the, that's the official name of the uh, campaign.
0: Okay. Hang on. I'm actually just going to jump on. Yep. 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 That works. If you go, uh, yeah, lifer for life. Um, go to GoFundMe and search "Lifer for Life." Um, then you will get um, Ken's page will come up as well. So, Ken, it's been a pleasure. Likewise, really has it's been a tremendous it, pleasure for me too. Uh, and I, I just think um, I don't know it. It makes me very hopeful as well when I think of you know other lives that you're going to impact directly too. But I think having this kind con- of kind of conversation as well and. Um, i just I feel privileged anyway and and I want to thank you for making the time to talk to me about this it's been been incredible for me
1: well, thank you, Andrew, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners and uh you know hopefully we'll have a conversation down the road again and uh, I can report on how things are
0: going Oh absolutely, look at it now, definitely, definitely right. part two right. so-, <laughs> <Right. Okay. laughs> so this has been uh, another episode of the Andrew Curtis Show, as I mentioned again go fund me life for life coaching. If you want to support what um, Ken's been doing, but also to uh, I'll put a link for his website as well in the description for this episode. You can find uh, some of Ken's writings as well. Um, and his book, mother California as well. You can track down. Um, it is available on Amazon and there's probably a few other places you can track it down as well. But thank you once again for listening. And uh, if you want to get in touch with me, remember you can do that sending an email through to theandrewcurtisshow at gmail.com or if you go to Facebook slash theandrewcurtisshow. I look forward to spending some time again with you again soon.